Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Poolside Perspectives podcast. I am Kevin Woodhurst, and with me is my good friend, Mike Farley, and we're so glad you found this podcast. Together, we have been homeowner advocates in outdoor living and the pool industry for over 30 years. So we understand the challenges you face creating your backyard paradise. We know your curiosity is not enough to ensure your success. So on this podcast, we're going to talk about the design process and practical steps to help you create that space. We'll have some fun mixed in with it, some aha moments, and this is no fluff. No one has time for that. So we're going to get serious and get very particular about all of these topics. Whether you are a new homeowner with your first remodel or a seasoned homeowner competing your last dream home, we are here to help you end up with what you dreamed of. From pools to patios, pizza ovens to pergolas, porcelain to pumps, pool party to permits, ping pong tables to the processes to your paradise. This is straight talk and action steps. Let's get started. All righty, good afternoon. This is Kevin Woodhurst and Mike Farley here with Poolside Perspectives. And we've got a really awesome show today because we've got a pretty special designer with us, one that I've known for about 25 years. And in fact, Kirk Bianchi, I don't know if you remember the time that we were in Pennsylvania, David Tishman's design class, and I remember you pretty much being better than everyone else. That's because of Mr. Palm, my architectural drafting teacher in high school. So you grew up in Michigan? Yeah, we had a really awesome high school architectural drafting all four years of high school. I was listening to one of the podcasts you were on. It said you got to spend half a day in drafting class, which I got to do the same thing in Texas. It's a great start. Is that what took you to Arizona? Yeah, I just said, I want to take architectural drafting. I want to take Japanese language and I want to be outside under a palm tree when I'm going to class. Arizona's yeah. a good place to do that. You went to U of A? Arizona State. Arizona State, gotcha. Yes. So that was back when Genesis was first getting started and Tishman was doing his design class. Skip Phillips was doing his hydraulics and Brian Van Bauer was doing his thing. And that whole program was just getting going back then. You and Mike both stayed in it, I think, for the entire duration. Did you not? Well, I, I was just there in Morrow Bay. I think it was their second one. I remember that one, too. That was my dose of Genesis. I didn't carry on until I was got reintroduced here in the last couple of years. Oh, gotcha. Did my trajectory on my own and came back like mm -hmm. a comet. So how did your journey start? Give us some background on, I mean, I know some of it. You're going to tell a lot better than I'm going to ask questions about it, so... Looking back, I attribute my perspective on, I was just captivated by art classes and photography and model building as a kid, you know. My dad sat me down when I was six and we built a model biplane together, awesome. spray paint testers. And I just love building models and ILM, Star Wars and building models and blowing things up. That's what I did as a junior high kid. Stop motion animation and a common theme, I was through the lens of a camera all the time, always behind the camera and trying to like perspective, you know, you build a model, but you want to make it look like as big as a house. You got to get down low and look up at it. So really that emphasis of being through the lens of a camera and storytelling with the video and how you move through a space, like in film, how they affect the camera angle, looking up at a subject, that's all choreographed. And how do they impact you emotionally by how they affect the camera angle and coming into a scene? That's all intentional. And so I got a good dose of that early and then architectural design. It was just second nature for me as I'm designing people's backyards to always, what's my view from inside looking through the house? That's what I was just going to say. I bet you that experience probably prepped you to some degree as you added to your processes, if you will. And then you went to Japan and yes. had an epiphany over there, did you not? 
Yeah, it was really, you know, my dad had a, his fifth business trip to Japan over the summer of my junior year. And he's like, let's go with me. So I got to go there for a month. While he was at work, I was just hanging out, riding the trains, checking out local stuff, going on field trips. And it was just insane how every layer of that culture is an artisan. I mean, the taxi cab driver with their white gloves and their lace over the seats, and he wears a captain's hat. He looks like he's an airline captain. And he stands at attention outside of his taxi. Every level of the culture, everyone took pride in their work, and they were all very artful in what they did. I was waiting 30 minutes to get a fruit plate in between meals at the local hotel we were staying at. I just wanted a can of Dole pineapple would have been great. It took 30 minutes and they brought it out and they'd sliced the pineapple in half and they'd carved it out and they had done this whole origami presentation on all the fruit that they had carved and a little whipped cream around the perimeter. I mean, it was, I looked over and I looked behind the window and the person who prepared it was, all you could see were his eyes peering around the corner to see my reaction of the craft that he had put into this presentation. So you were moved by that and that ultimately became part of how you do your business. Yeah. Wow. How thoughtful and artful and the gesture of being artistically creative and presenting it to somebody to receive what they had done was so moving. Yeah. And I would have been satisfied with just, you know, throw something on a plate and get me out of here. So it was very dramatic. And that was every layer of the culture. And then there was one Japanese garden I got to see that was tucked away in a courtyard that you had no idea was there until you went into the space, sat down on the floor, Japanese style and turned and looked, and there was a paper shoji blind wall that opened on this courtyard garden that you had no clue was there. It wasn't any bigger than your living room. It was an enclosed space, but wow. I mean, I was just mesmerized by the, the composition of that little space and how it was a surprise. So that was an epiphany moment, was just blown away by that. I still carry that picture with me to show clients what you can do with a small space, and it's all about the composition. And it's like the first slide in my Genesis class, and I dissect it and show what's there. And it was very impactful that moment. The surprising thing though, is I was architecturally minded back then still. And this is a nugget that there's a pervasive attitude in architecture and pools. And that is the landscape is a fringe. It's what fills in the negative space. It's an afterthought. You design the architecture, you design the hardscape, you design the pool and then, oh, what's left? Well, that's where the landscape goes. And even though I had that moment in Japan where the landscape itself was celebrated, as the flower arrangement, it wasn't until my mid-20s, you know, another seven or eight years, where I started putting the landscape on the pedestal and carving the space around it. So it's an inverted process. Start with the glorious ironwood tree that is the focal point, and that tells you where the pool isn't going, sure. where you have to attractively. So that inverted process, it still took a while for that to happen. But that is the, the peak of my process is just turning that upside down. Because most architects and pool people, the landscape, it comes later at the end of the job when they come in last and just fill, fill in the empty space. It's very underwhelming when you do that. So what I'm hearing is your perspective is to design the landscape and all of the other elements and then see what you have left for the pool and design an artistic pool around that space. Is that it? Precisely. That's yeah. your inside out design theory, right? how you described it. Or outside in. Outside in. Yes. Sorry. Got it backwards. I like it. You're dealing with the backdrop first and then work your way to the next layer in, in consecutive motion. Most folks design, here's the pool. What can I fit around it? And then you're left with not much. So this would really work well, especially in small spaces. Correct. 
You don't have the luxury. If you're dealing with a two-story house next door, you got to address that right off. Otherwise, the pool's right against the wall and you're stuck looking at the neighbor forever. Yeah, so you have to deal with that perimeter element first. Screen it with a tree that would capture that view and not have to be looking at that neighbor's house. So you have to scale it that way. Tell us a little bit about your company, Bianchi Design, which I've followed for a lot of years. I've seen all the magazine articles. I've seen all the accolades. Your website is phenomenal. Everything that you seem to put your hands into is really exceedingly artistic and very well thought out. So kudos to you. But tell Thanks our so audience about where you work out of primarily, what you do, how you get your clients, that sort of thing. Yeah. They come from so many different places, whether it's architects or realtors or interior designers that have come to know me, sometimes referrals from clients and house has been there, website, all these different channels that you have to have working simultaneously. They find me, but, and I really position my language on my website is, Hey, if you want an artistic, immersive experience, I'm your guy. That's the language that I speak in. And you're going to experience this environment through your senses. I got to work at the Ritz Carlton and they had a credo that we all had to memorize of what your mission was. And one of the lines was that they wanted to have this enlivening the senses was a phrase out of that credo that was their mission statement that every employee had to memorize that. That was really cool. The way the fragrance of the flowers and the savory of the tea, and all these senses have to come into play. And when you enliven the senses, you're creating these transcendent memories. Like I guess even like Tony Robbins was saying, how do you create a memory? It's through heightened emotional response to external stimuli. That's what you remember. These moments in your life usually had high emotion, had high sensory input. And that's how you create memories is you have to heighten the senses that creates the link. And so they're interrelated. Enlivening the senses through sound, the sights, the fragrances, the visual alignments of things that aren't, that are make, you make them special and proportions, all of those artistic gestures. That's the language that I speak in as even in my marketing and my website. And I haven't once talked about flow rates or hydraulics or in-floor cleaning systems in that conversation. It's incorporated. You're focusing on the art. Yeah. Start with the art. Start with the why. I think a lot of builders, to their credit, are focused on nuts and bolts because that's their craft and they're focused on the how. And so my language with clients is before we get to that, let's figure out why. Mm -hmm. Don't just rush in and start building something. Put five or 10% towards figuring out what you're going to do and why. And then the 90% will follow with the build and make sure that the nuts and bolts fulfill the vision for what you were trying to achieve. Well, that makes sense. Now that you say it, that a lot of folks rush right in and just start digging. You know, let's, where do you want to put the pool? Let's put it here. Okay, go. When can you start? As soon as we get a deposit, we'll be in there the following day. It's definitely different. And that's part of the premise of the show, Kirk, is that we're trying to help people understand the difference between just a basic salesperson now. And there's a market for that. There's a business model for that. And then for those of us that look at this a little bit more artistic and are trying to put together something entirely different, which isn't just a pool, it's an, an experience. It's an outdoor environment. We all have childhood memories of favorite places, family trips, and even as simple as my grandparents had an empty lot next door with one singular cottonwood tree with a swing. And we'd all sit under that tree and have lemonade and the neighbors would come and we'd sit underneath that tree and that tree became the shelter for this childhood memory. Fourth of July and hot air balloons coming over the sky and landing in the cornfield behind the house. Those are all high sensory moments. And so how do you capture those experiences, create memories? It's how you shape your environment. It was that tree and the shelter and the 
the lighting and the rustling of the cottonwood tree was real special. Um, so when you can create moments like that by designing an environment, it's a stage that people inhabit and have these opportunities to create hospitality, have your friends and family over. And now you have this setting to cultivate these relationships in. That's what you're really providing. Absolutely. So are there particular questions that you ask people in a process to understand the types of spaces they might want to create those memories in? Yes. I ask, where have you traveled? What are some of your favorite places? Do you have favorite memories? Like I'll conjure up memories of childhood, like I mentioned just now. What was it about those places that you remember? Why do you remember it so fondly? And you can actually pinpoint it down to some of the ambient characteristics of the space. Well, it was cozy. It was intimate. It was this color, that color. And they start associating colors and textures and closure with their fireplaces with that. Oh, that's like the fireplace at grandma's house. Yeah, but whatever. There's that correlation to memories and you can translate into physical features mm-hmm. and how to build something that's similar to that experience that they had. So I like to start there. So creating those spaces creates a strong emotional sense for the space, I would imagine. Exactly. Well, and by asking all those questions, you're giving your clients something to really think about. Because I don't know that a lot of them really know what to think about. So it takes somebody asking those questions, getting into people's heads, trying to understand where they're coming from. It's a great process. Yeah. And it's kind of a get to know you moment and mm-hmm. they get to know yourself. I don't know. Why do you, why did I like that place so much? I, I can't put my finger on it. And people have nostalgic memories about places they've been. And if you can extract the why, you can recreate those buttons. So when you go to a site, you talked about viewing through the lens of a camera. So are sight lines from inside the house important to consider when you're designing a space? Yeah, I'll start at the curb, actually. What's it even like to arrive at your home? And what's that experience like? And then if you're the house guest, you might be coming through the front door. What do you see? What unfolds? You know, if it's you, a lot of folks come in through the garage and the laundry room and the mud room or whatever you have in your region. And what is that experience like? When do you finally first see the glimpse of the backyard? And what's the first thing? Is it inviting? And what do you see through certain windows? Because that's 90% of your experiences from inside looking out. So if you can nail those view corridors with something worth looking at, beautiful from the inside. And it also beckons you to come out and see more as you get out of the house. Go see what's going on in the backyard. Totally agree. View corridors are huge. Do you get architectural plans to figure that out, or do you actually measure it with site measurements, or how do you create that? If it's an existing house, yeah, I make a point to go to those places in their home and take pictures. So as I'm designing, I'm referencing back, hey, I'm standing in the front door, here's what I saw, here's my view from the kitchen. I'm making sure that I have photography from the inside looking out. If the home doesn't exist yet, I have to extrapolate that from just the drawings and recognizing a lot of times I'll influence the architecture. Your window is three feet to the left. I'm not getting a complete view here. Or I'm I'm looking at the side of the garage. Can we make that facade more interesting or have an articulation or make it step back? Because that's a prominent, you're looking at the side of the garage from this view corridor from inside the house. So we got to make it more interesting. So I'll give architectural feedback a lot of times when noticing where doors and windows are or should be. And you can enhance the architectural process if you have good feedback that way. That's a lot of fun to get in there ahead of time and uh, not be stuck with what was handed to you. Sure. Half-baked. So you had mentioned something earlier about starting at the curb. Are you generally doing complete 
property overhauls where you're doing not only the architectural stuff on the house, but recreating the landscaping, obviously recreating the pool and ultimately helping to create a place and a space in the customer's yard they want to spend all the time in. Are you typically doing the whole thing? I am. My workflow, I'm no longer just designing the pool. I'm I'm really treating the entire site, landscape architecture, landscape design kind of mode for the whole project whenever I can. So you're doing a complete master plan. That's how I describe it. So you're looking at everything from the side yards to the front yard to the backyard, how they enjoy the whole space. It's true. Yeah. And on that note, I often try to flesh out, are you building a guest house here someday? Or in the near future, do you need to work at home? Are you going to build an outbuilding so you can work at home or a wood shop or something that you haven't told me about yet? Oh yeah, actually, well, that takes up a third of the yard over here. Right. No, and it's going to be this structure that's in the background. Let's at least rough it in so it doesn't disrupt the flow of everything else we have going. So I really like to do a master plan approach, even if it's something that's hypothetical that might be down the road. So I think it's good. Design as if it were there all at once. Mm -hmm. You do a master plan. These are conceptual drawings, not working drawings, I would assume, to start with. Do you get into material selections and structural specifications and that type of thing? Or do you just start with the general concept? General concept at first, space planning, layouts. I do ask in early on, what are the materials you're fond of? If there's already a house underway, what's your interior finishes? What's your interior floor? And is there stone on the fireplace or is it house? Try to carry that language throughout. If it's a new build and they haven't gotten there yet, I try to elicit that so I know is it an edgy, clean, modern vibe, or is it more rustic and stone kind of vibe? What's their, what are they going for crisp and modern and architectural or something earthy and organic? You want to get the vibe from those materials early on. And that would just give you a direction. We don't get specific till later, but at least you get a direction from that. Just that little bit of intel. So, for the Poolside Perspective podcast vocabulary lesson of the week, we've got the word layout. No, it's a great one. I had someone the other day ask me if this was about sunbathing around the pool. (laughs) Right. I said in an episode not too long ago, I went and did a layout. So, they were like, what were you doing on this person's job Mm -hmm. site? So, how would you describe a layout? So, layout's going to be when your designer pool company comes out, meets with you, Lays the pool out on the ground with paint. Oh, or, graffiti? Or graffiti, yes. It's not going to be perfect because we're basically looking for, is this the pool shape that you wanted? Is this location still look good? Because seeing even painted outline on the ground, you know, helps people a lot. Although I will tell you that over the years, and maybe you can jump in here too, is that almost everybody thinks the pool looks small when it's painted on the ground. Almost always. Yeah. And I've had two people in my career insist on making it bigger. And one of them said, anytime that person wants to make it bigger, you call and have them talk to me because you ended up building Lake Tahoe in my backyard after they dug the pool. It was massive. I think it's hard sometimes to get an idea of scale. And that's one of the reasons we do it. And I've even done it during the design process. Just meet a homeowner out there and say, you know, here's what I'm thinking. And so now you can see it painted on the ground. What are your thoughts? Right. Because it might be, yeah, you're right on target or, yeah, we're not thinking that. So it saves a bunch of time. But it's too small. It usually happens with people when they do the foundation of their house. They say, well, this house is tiny. Then they put the walls up and they're like, oh, well, Mm -hmm. it is a big house. And the same thing as a pool. It's one dimensional. Now it's three dimensional. You know, so it makes a big difference. Well, and as soon as it's dug, people go, 
it's huge. Right. So we started off with, wow, it's really small, and then got into, this thing's even bigger than we thought. The reason you want to do a layout beforehand is so you can make sure it's everything's right, because you don't want a dig crew to show up and start digging a pool and then be like, oh, wait, time out. This doesn't mm-hmm. look like I want it to be. So every company I've worked with in the last 20 years, we paint it on the ground and walk through it. And that's the definition of a layout, just a preliminary pre-construction meeting, making sure if it is in fact pre-construction, making sure the pool's laid out on the ground in a fashion that you can look at and go, that looks great. Yeah. When I introduced you in the beginning, I did not let our audience know where you are from as far as where you work out of mostly. Now, I know you're from Phoenix because I lived in Phoenix for 30 years. You spent a lot of time here there, but do you do work outside of the Phoenix area? Yeah, I have done work abroad, some in the Bay Area and some remotely in Arizona, done Arkansas and Ohio. We spent some work there in some Michigan, where I'm from, did some design work in Michigan. So I asked Mike earlier, I said, is he a Spartan fan or a Wolverine fan? I never got into the football. I was too busy drawing architecture. There you go. That's a safe answer and a good answer. That's awesome. (laughs) I was stuck at my drafting table. I didn't follow it so much. Mm Mm-hmm. So do you still work on a drafting table or are you all computer-aided design at this point or do do 3D modeling? How do you work your process? I bought a drafting table six months ago that I haven't used yet, but I did buy one that I haven't had one in 20 years. Guys, I miss drawing by hand so bad. Yeah, It's really therapeutic and spontaneous and loose, but I've gotten into a CAD workflow designing in 2D in a more precise way. I really like the layers and being able to turn the layers on and off, guidelines, snap grids, things that give me a framework to cling to. That's really useful. So I'm, I'm to scale right off the bat. When you draw by hand, you might budget a little and not be to scale and not quite get the space planning you thought you could, and then you got to redo it. So I do like the accuracy of that, I, though it is an impediment. I am a bright brain guy. I love the flow of hand drawings. I use my CAD environment like a drafting table. My CAD mentors chastise me all the time that I'm not using the layers and the classes correctly, that I just want a drawing tool. Leave me alone. (laughs) (laughs) What do you use for your 3D stuff? I've been using Full Studio. I would like to really become more proficient in SketchUp. Mm -hmm. It's more, it's tighter. It's more accurate. You can export to CAD environments. You can do Lumion and Enscape and Twinmotion, which is a more beautiful rendering program. But I've been using Pool Studio because it's such a quick interface. And that's addicting to be able to just literally set boulders and scale them and rotate them and manipulate them and paint the grade to change the grade and move the lighting around. That's so, the interface is so rapid and addicting that way that it's literally like you're creating it. There's, I wish they would just, hey guys, if you're listening, make your program awesome, okay? I've noticed your Pool Studio plans and they're very good. And yeah, that yeah. program, I totally agree with you. It has its issues, but for the layperson, it's pretty good. It's pretty easy to learn. Yeah, there's stuff that I'd love to do in there, like an inclined wall that's curving. Mm-hmm. I, my mind can imagine it, but I can't do it in the program. So those are just some things that I do in that world. So I'm having to bridge between multiple programs to get the finished product that I'd like to show. Yeah, those compound curves are challenging. Yeah, so there you are, some nitty gritty under the hood information on drafting. But then I've been looking at iPad sketching that I've wanted to learn a Morfolio Trace as a tool that you can draw with. And it's like trace paper drawing on the iPad, but it's digital. So you can send an email off to somebody to approve and look at it right from your iPad. It's really nifty uh, that way. Wanting to 
delve into that some more too. I want to get back to my roots of hand drawing is what I'm saying. Those are ways to do it. Do you think that there is just maybe there's something about hand drawing that the consumer likes as an initial plan or what's, I hear you. I mean, cause I feel the same way. I used to draw prolifically and I really struggled with changing to pull studio. And I did about 11 years ago when I was with another company there and cause all the salespeople were using it and I was a sales manager. I'm like, how can I be the sales manager? I don't even know how to operate this program. But it was interesting because when I switched over from hand drawing and a drafting table to pool studio, I thought it was like going from a Blackberry to an iPhone. It's like, why did I wait? To your point, it's a little rudimentary, but it's a really good program and it's gotten better. But there's definitely a lot of glitches that I think we all would like to see corrected. Yeah. And I, it is very nice to be able to just throw down a rectangle and flip it in 3D and there it is a pool. It's pretty handy. I think there is a... When you're drawing with a pencil, you are not having to think. The interface between your brain and the pencil is effortless. It's just the pencil just starts moving on the page. Well, and you're so like, good at the perspectives. That's probably a pretty quick and easy way for you to show a consumer something when yeah. you're sitting there with paper. Yeah, so it's very intuitive. When you're having to flip through menus to look for the tool to draw what you want to draw with, there's four or five steps that are like friction in the system. Your mind knows what it wants to create, but... You have to go through this left brain channel to find the tool to draw it with. It impedes the flow. So the closer you can get to hand drawing, the more in the zone you can be and just let it flow. So that's what a lot of artists have reported about getting back to the basics. How do you feel about that, Mike? Since I've never left the drafting board, I like it. <laughs> so I draw everything by hand and then I have an assistant that puts everything in 3D. So yeah. that's how I work. But I understand what you're saying. And my wife's been like, oh, you need to switch. And I'm like, 60? No, I don't think so. It's worked for me for a long time. And it's getting the job done. It does sometimes. But there's pros and cons, I'm sure, to every process. But it's all about the tools that you're using. But it's how can you put your creativity into documentation of what you're trying to express. One of the things is our goal is to help the homeowners have a better process. And so if you were to make recommendations to them as they go through the process, are there any particular things you would recommend them to do to, to end up with a good result? I think if consumers knew better, they would seek out landscape architects first to design their outdoor living spaces. Most homeowners don't give themselves permission to do that. They have an association. These are even wealthy clients that I've had that have arrived and can afford to do so. They still have this mental, they're humble people. They, the architects, that's for the rich and famous. I'm a humble person. I'm going to call a pool company to bypass that step and just, oh, they'll know enough. It'll be good enough. And they don't realize that they're getting a, maybe a salesperson who's selling a built product, but now they're bypassing the design process. The folks who are coming to you from a design-build company may not have the education in design to give you the artistry that's possible. And they're jumping right ahead to nuts and bolts and hydraulics and structural things. They're all important, but that condition happens a lot. And if homeowners gave themselves permission, hey, let's do something really artful and beautiful and build it, what would that look like? And they would be seeking out a person who's first artistically minded, but who knows how to build. Maybe it can be built. So who is that person? And it, it's more of a landscape architectural mindset and core knowledge. So they're dealing with the whole environment and the pool is part of that environment. You're dealing with the plant material and the structures. That really has become my 
approach to the outdoors, specializing in pools, because that's where I came from. And so everything is integrated. So that's my advice. And seek somebody who has that integrated vision of the landscape is the peak. It's the flower arrangement in the space. And then work back towards the pool has to nestle in and be part of that. Don't let the pool dominate the scene and, oh, good luck with the rest. Fill it in with the landscape, whatever's left. There are folks that do have that mindset. If you look for it, you'll find it. Yeah, as in everything else. That's how you really should approach it. And that's the epiphany that a lot of owners have. Is when I show them that process, they're like, why would I fill my whole space with the pool? And now I can't even bring in a tree that I wanted to. It's an obvious thing once they see the sequence. So lead with the landscape. And it's an uphill stream with a lot of builders because I'm staying in my lane. I'm a pool builder. I'm not a landscape guy. I don't want to start a whole new business around landscape. Okay, we'll partner with somebody who will be your companion in the project. You're team building now. If you don't want to be a landscape contractor or designer or builder, partner with somebody to go in with you who is. And now you can go in as a unit and a team and create a spectacular environment that you could not do by yourself. So you mentioned in some other podcasts, other team members that you've brought in other than just landscapers. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Oh, a favorite recent Jam Lennox Moyer and lighting. Yes. Holy cow. That's a whole nother world of awesome, which ties back to photography. So I had a glimpse of it in photography and working with Mike Woodall, my photographer, all those years. So seeing that applied to landscape lighting, there was a, a person, a, a light manufacturer said this phrase and it's apropos. He said, yeah, talking about landscapers who install lighting, they're fixture planters. They treat fixtures like plants. Well, they have no idea how it affects the environment. What light should it be? How does it aim? Oh, there's a tree. I should put a light. Boom. There's a tree. I should put a light. Boom. How big is the tree? Do you need it from behind the tree, around the tree, hanging out of the tree? There's four or five tree fixtures you might need, not just one. The art of lighting in the final analysis is how you see the project at night. Hello, that's when they're out there most. Yes, sir. And if you light it, cross lighting, back lighting, down lighting, all of these different techniques that you can learn from photography and film can really make a dramatic setting instead of just blasting it with a floodlight and it looks horrid. So yeah, lighting is a whole other rabbit hole of awesomeness that can be achieved if you have someone who uses it as an art form and not just as throwing lights out on, in the general vicinity of where they ought to go. If you don't aim it right, it's a failed effort. Well, and the lighting is really another science in the in and of itself. And as we've talked about on one of the other podcast, the there's lands or there's lighting engineers. So to your point, they're managing and putting all that light in the best place possible. There's the technical aspect of lighting, but there's the, it's like civil engineering and landscape. Civil engineering, there's very technical. We need a ditch to get the water to flow from here to here, but it's a freely ugly ditch, <laughs> but it works. But you know, the landscape guy will have the artistic, well, if we undulate the terrain and weave it in and out and have some retaining boulders and some foliage. It'll look more like a, a dry creek bed and it's more, it's not just a straight channel you cut through the earth. They both function the same, but one looks a lot better. So the artistic side of lighting is, should you put steps and risers or lights and risers? Only if you must, but you see them everywhere. And it's just these strip, these little blip, 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 blip lights going upstairs. It's horrid. Try to light it from above. Well, that's probably part of the conversation that goes on. Do you want lights on your steps? Yes, I do. Okay, we'll plug in six lights on your steps and end a discussion. It's X amount of dollars and you're moving on. You're looking yeah. at it from a different perspective altogether, which is we're going to really look at what's the best way to do this. 
Yeah. Lighting it so you don't see the fixtures, but somehow it's illuminated. Mm -hmm. That's the prize in lighting is that you don't want to see the fixtures. You just want to see the lighting itself. It takes effort to do that. Yes, it does. So you can make the highlights be seen and make all the other things disappear. That's the cool thing too about lighting at night with the neighbors and all the other things that are going around. Cool. There's things you can do with lighting that take people's breath away. Just cross-lighting, revealing the texture of something. If you just light it straight on, it's just blasted and it's, oh yeah, it's illuminated. But if you light it from the side, now all the texture or whatever was in that comes out because you see the shadowing and the depth and the crevices and it's enhanced and a lot more dramatic and it's better than life. You wouldn't see that in the day, but at night it's an opportunity. So if you light it right, it can really stop people in their tracks when you light it right. And until you show them, it's very difficult to communicate. A good way to do it is just to go light it and show them and say, now what fixtures do you want me to remove? No, but if you have good photographs that illustrate that, those work. But it's a very visual art form for sure. What other members are on your team you collaborate with? Interior designers, a big untapped important area is site furnishings. A good way to ruin a project is to go to Costco and just grab whatever was in the showroom and throw it on your half million, whatever, your million dollar backyard. And yeah, we were at today's patio and this was on clearance and it all matches and plunk and you just drop it in and it's just, oh my gosh, how do you ruin a $300,000 sports car as you put crappy tires on it? Or if the wheels are out of balance, that little piece of lead on the rim that keeps the wheels in perfect balance makes the whole experience of that vehicle good or bad. Furniture is the interface between you and the site. It's what you finally end up sitting in and experiencing. So it is the most human part of the scene is the furniture that you finally approach and touch and sit on. So it needs to be shapely in the same style of the shapes that are in the yard. A very square rectangular yard might want a little square and rectangular patio furniture that has the same shapes. Likewise, that furniture would look odd in a curvaceous design and have this blocky square furniture that would look out of place. And then, so having interior designers who have access to this plethora of what's available, they've seen it all, they know the quality of the product, they can get it there on time and deliver it and unveil it. Fabrics and the colors of the fabrics. The biggest pop of color is in the fabrics in a whole yard a lot of times. A lot of folks will say, yeah, give me a subdued palette, beiges and lights and whites and grays, but where might there be some color? in the fabrics, in the pillows. So having people with the exposure to the fabric choices and the colors, that's the finishing touch. And if you don't do that, it's missing something huge. So I really like having folks to flesh that out. So Kirk, do you have a favorite project that you've done? And the reason I'm asking is part of what we want to do with the guests that are on the show is we want to showcase a pool on our website, obviously tied with your contact information for everybody else. But do you have a pool that you could talk about that's, man, I really... Smoke this one. This one is a great one. One of the projects, Corbino was the name. And if you're watching this visually, it's my background. It was way out on the east side of town, up in the mountains at the edge of town. And their lot was just, had been just nestled into this desert context. And they had this hill in their background, just off their site that was a couple hundred feet high, if that. Rams and eagles would love to climb on and it's like a TV commercial. They just sit on the top of that mountain. And it just happened to be the right distance and the right location that it's reflected in the swimming pool. And it's just dramatic. The site was so pristine and desert and raw. My goal was there was no enclosure around that site yet. It was just an open lot. So my challenge to self was I am not going to cage them in. 
with site walls and property walls. You have to have a fence, of course. So we're going to do a rebar fence that's invisible to the eye and just weaves in and out of natural. I'm going to bring the desert palette of plant material right into the space up to the water's edge. So there's no hard edge of where the desert palette ends and the manicured interior. It's a very transitioned experience. The more manicured desert stuff is right against the house where it's orderly and then it fades into the desert. There's no abrupt jarring experience there. When you sit down in this yard, your blood pressure just drops and you sink into the chair and you, it's so hard to get up. When it was time to leave, we literally had to extract ourselves from the chairs around the fire pit. It was just a, such an amazing sight to be there. This east off Dynamite? This is way east out at Superstition Mountains. Oh, way east. So Gold Canyon area, that area. Gold Canyon, exactly. Yeah, it's beautiful out there. And the clients were lovely. They were just amazing. So gracious and so kind and very, they called me because we want something beautiful and we saw your handiwork and that's what we want. So our kinship was in that regard was just make something extraordinary for me. Do your work. So you've been in the business at least 25 years, maybe longer. I'm just going back to when I first met you. At any rate, going back to when you got into the industry and you've spent this last 25 years, where do you see our industry going? What are some of the things you think that would make our industry even better? Because again, part of what Mike and I are doing, sharing information, we want to see the industry continue to grow. There's a whole group of younger designers and builders and guys out there that are just doing some phenomenal design work, different than what you do, different than what Mike does. But they're still really nice pools. But if we were to look at Moving forward, how does the industry continue to get better? Because it has definitely morphed in the last 10, 15 years. I think what has not been working for the last couple of decades that I've tried to resolve was everyone has been hyper, they call it, you're trained in your lane and you stay in your lane. I'm a pool person and I don't get out of my lane. What is the finished environment? It's landscape, it's lighting, it's furniture, it's pools, it's architecture. So if you want a five-star finished environment, all of those elements have to work together and you can't leave anything out. Well, I'm just a pool person. You either need to expand your knowledge or assemble a team to hit all of those quadrants. I would say, I would hope that the industry is recognizing that and outdoor living as a whole is becoming more of an understanding of what has to happen. So there's firms that are pool and landscape companies. And they're doing landscape not because they have to, but because there's somebody in-house who's a green thumb who just is a plant nerd. There's a difference. There's, oh, we're here, we may as well. There's plant people that know horticulture and are really, they just go on and on about this particular plant grows in this conditions. And this is an, you need those people on your staff and to work with you if you are not that person yourself. So building the team to finish the whole environment, I think, is where the industry needs to go. Because that's what our clients are really coming to us. They assume that's what we're going to give them. And then a pool guy just, oh, there's your pool. Good luck with the rest of the yard. That's a disaster. I mean, how many times do people build pools in their lifetime? Don't screw it up. They've only got one or two times, maybe three, that they're going to do this. Sometimes it's one. Do it well. You got to have all of those quadrants working together. So how did you learn all those quadrants? Because you started, you had the architecture background and then you started in the pool industry. I've listened to the podcast about some of how you first originally started, but how did you branch out and learn all those different processes or are you just still working with heavy with a team? Yeah, I'm still, the things that I'm acquiring presently are the landscape plant knowledge, 
my mentor and cohort in that realm retired. So I'm trying to fill his shoes, but also bring in people who know that trade. Because my path was architecture first, drawing art photography first, architecture was my main vehicle. Then big bump, ended up in swimming pools, but had an architectural mindset. So I was designing the whole space from the beginning. I was even chastised by my first employer. It's nice of you to draw the whole yard, but we don't build that. Move on, you know, just <laughs> get in there and do the pool. And he was trying to do me a favor to make more money and make him more money. How can I figure out the pool if I haven't drawn where the kitchen and the barbecue go? So I was already doing that early because I was looking at it from a mindset of architecturally, globally looking at the whole space. I had been exposed to Japanese gardens in college and my travels and saw what that was like. So that was in the back of my mind marinating. And as I worked in the pool industry, I mean, finally started teaming up with the landscape company. That pairing helped us deliver complete projects. We didn't do it in-house, but we had a sister company that we just referred back and forth all the time. And that exposure grew there. And that's, that persisted because of that. I always worked at a pool company, but I had a landscape contractor that I worked alongside me with. And that was my process. Morgan uh, Holt, Earth Art Landscape, thank you, was a big mentor with me for 12 years. And I do a design and he critique it and manipulate it so that the landscape, he could have his domain to do his magic. Hey, you didn't leave me enough room. My guy, I need a planter that's at least this big to plant something here. Back off a little on the pool by 18 inches and I can do this. Okay. So we collaborated on the space together. I learned that from him. And then a recent ad has been Jan with the light. Yeah, so you can definitely pick up some things by collaborating with other people around the industry in different various sciences. And that's something that I did a lot of over the years because I just like people anyway. But that's a great way to learn. In addition to the educational opportunities in the industry, collaborating with others and, and finding some mentors or finding some people to run things by is good. Otherwise, you're in a vacuum and better to learn from OPE, other people's experience. So you teach a class now through Genesis and have done so for about three years now? Two and a half, yeah. Yeah. I uh, was given a two-day platform to just do your method. How do you do it? So outdoor living is an art form. It's been a class I've put together. It's just, if I show up on a site, how do I start? And I, work, I realized I had a 12-step sequence that <laughs> I worked through. The Bianchi method, 12 steps. And if you do it in this order, what comes out the other end is pretty much approximately the sequence you need to go through. One of the challenges I find with processes is some people are just in a big hurry. And so you're trying to slow them down a little bit and say, look, there's a lot to consider here. But it depends on time of year, depends on so many different factors. But we all have our processes, but sometimes people just don't want to do the process. They just give me a number, give me a pool. And that's not really my thing. It's not yours either, I know. And clearly yeah. not yours. Yeah. And if that's a client putting that kind of pressure on, I just say, do you realize what you're spending here? Mm -hmm. Do you want to call it or do you want to get it right? You're only going to do this once, right? It's a lot more expensive to make a mistake and tear it out than to uh, slow down and really think it through. Absolutely. And they tend to relax. Yeah. Let's, let's just do this once and do it right and have it be awesome. It'll be worth the wait. But the thing about that 12-step process, a lot of folks maybe do that process, but the order in which they do it is wrong and leads to the wrong outcome. If you sequence things correctly, like I said, put the landscape in first, at least the major elements, it tells you where the pool isn't going. As you've already claimed that yard, the focal point areas you have to claim early in the yard. Otherwise the pool is going to dominate and take over. And if you don't claim that turf for the flower arrangement, if you will, it's going to get displaced by 
something else like a hardscape or a pool or something, a barbecue. So the sequence and the order in which you do things and what comes out the end will be totally different just by how you do things in what order. That's been the, the crux of my class is going through that sequence. The first half of my class looks at art history, looks at art and photography composition principles and shows you the, it's called the gestalt psychology of your brain and how it functions and how your eye reads instantaneously a scene, looking for the negative space in order to navigate. Your eye is already be clustering things together, grouping things together so that you can, if you had to make a dash for it, you could know where to go. That mental process, if you understand it, will help you to order your concepts and your construction and your compositions in a way that's pleasing to the eye to do that. Instead of making it a jumbled mess and hurdles, you want there to be a cohesive arrangement that is pleasing to the eye. If you know those principles, you can work with them. That's the first half of my class is just how do you even see? Mm -hmm. Once you see it, you can't unsee it because now it's like, holy crap, I've been looking at this way for so long. And now I see this pattern, this relationship between heights and widths. It's a little bit OCD once you turn it on, it's hard to turn it off. But when you have that and then you have the sequence and you put them together, that's how I do what I do. Gotcha. So there's a lot of famous artists that have used that principle. Yeah, there's stuff you can pull from the Renaissance and the underlayment, the grids, the diagonals that they put into their paintings that are hidden, but they use it as a framework to lay out their sketches and then apply the paint to canvas. They didn't impromptu go up to the canvas and start painting. Oh, it's a masterpiece. They labored over the layout and the structure and the form. You see it in their sketches and there's diagonal lines and frames and ellipses and triangles and stuff that's in there that's been arranged in advance. And then they filled in those shapes with the people and whatever it is they're composing. And you go up to a painting, you don't know what's there. And somebody shows you and then you go, oh my gosh, there it is. Then you appreciate the craft of what they did, how tedious that was, but that's why their work is somehow elevated. There's something you can't put your finger on. Why is this so pleasing? Oh, it's because forming this trapezoid shape and this ellipse coming together. It's there in the composition hidden. And if you start employing those frameworks, you can use it in your landscape and pool design. People will have the same reaction. I don't know why I love it, but I just do. Mm-hmm. You're like a, a magic. Awareness. It's fun. So when you go through a process with somebody, what's a, clients are always asking, oh, how long is this going to take? Because they're impatient. They want to get rolling on their things. But your process, just give us a feel for timeline that might be involved or something. Oh. Historically, just my own business, my own workflow. If, if a client size up, I typically, I say for the last 20 years, I've had a two to three month lead time. I've got the work I'm working on and then the work of doing your work. So that's just my own speed of production. Sometimes I should delegate and get out of my own way. I don't know. That's, that's part of the beauty of it is that you stay engaged from start to finish. And I think that's yeah. profound. Yeah, I'm, I'm on job sites a lot, just helping nurture the things along and noticing things and that nobody else can see and I'm just there to help. And it's, it's not a, it doesn't derail the process. It's there to help and nudge before things go awry. You know, if a tree's coming in, hey, did we turn it just the right angle? Yeah, that's it. Land it, plant it, go. Stuff like that. You can't put that on a plant and it makes all the difference. And so there's times where I'm, I have to be on a job site that I can't be designing at my desk. And that's, of course, the tree was scheduled with the crane to show up on Monday. It got bumped to Thursday. So my whole week got rearranged. So the time that I was sitting there drawing got rearranged because you have to prioritize the construction, boots on the ground, events happening that you only got one shot, be there. Yeah. So it's that constant push and pull between 
bringing it to fruition in the field and then, okay, going back and doing a design makes it interesting. No doubt. In a good way. It's fun. It's dynamic. It never gets old. It's not boring because I'm getting to see it come to fruition and participate with the crews and the teams. That's so rewarding. If I were just stuck there drawing and never got to see it come to fruition or worse, I go out and see it go together and it's, oh my gosh, it's so many things that got missed that could have been improved or I've done that. I've experienced that and it's so painful. I just can't hand off my designs. Good luck. Right. I just know it lose 20% or more of the impact, at least. And that's a big deal. Because you care about your job. Yeah. It's those subtle details that really make it stink. If you don't, it's approximate. I tell folks, I tell clients, a really good plan is no better than a Mona Lisa paint by number. It's a framework. The bringing it to life is really the guy putting the paint on the canvas and blending the colors. His ability to pull it all together. Yeah, you have a great plan, but the execution of that plan with the subtleties of layouts and tile and plant placement. And there's parts of the plan that are rigid and, and dimensional and it is what it is, but the other parts that are more organic and how they weave together, you can only do that by being there or having that eye. And so I've resigned myself that I'm in the field and to bring about the work that I've done. I'm okay with that. That's my skill. I like being in the field too. And I know you do too, Mike. It's the joy of seeing, like you said, the whole thing come together. And that's what's fun about what we do is we don't have to sit and wait three and four years as you work on a project to see it come to fruition. Usually within a year's period of time, something we've dreamed up in our head for these people gets built and they get to enjoy and love it. And the response for them is what feeds, I think it does with you as well, just the, the joy people have of living in their spaces. For sure. It is. It's very rewarding. So the question of the day, this is really important. The questions of the day, that's one thing we want your input on. Mm -hmm. And so on the website, we have a section for you to go in and ask questions that we haven't addressed at this point in time. And in fact, my wife says we need to give away some things. So, you know, people send their questions in because they're thinking, ah, well, I don't want to bother sending that in. We really want to do answer questions for people. So send your questions in. We'll give you some recognition for it. And, you know, also probably get you some kind of cool stuff too. So absolutely. Maybe a t-shirt or a hat. Yeah. Or who knows what. Yeah. So we had a question from Nick and Nick wrote in from Keller, Texas. And Nick wanted to know, do we do all of our work in house? Oh, that's a good question. There's different ways that people set up their business model to do work, yep. as in construction work. I'm guessing is what Nick is referencing. Yep. And so some people choose to do, I worked for Jeremy Pools out in Sacramento, California. We did everything in-house and we had fourth generation employees mm. that worked for us. We had three generations on one deck crew. Wow. Okay. So- we had a lot of people that were really skilled at their situation, and we built probably 400 pools a year. So a lot. we were building a lot of pools back in the 90s. There was two things that we didn't do in-house, and one was the pool finish. Mm -hmm. uh, Interior finish, plaster. Because we did plaster and we did pebble sheen, so we didn't do that in-house. And then we also did not do auto covers in-house. That was somebody else that did that. But other than that, we did everything in-house. That's impressive. 
So it took a very large organization of hundreds of people, tons of trucks and things like that. But this was a company that just now, this last year, turned 100 years old. Wow. And Impressive. They had a huge investment in that situation. Mike did a great job. Mike Jeremiah. That's what I meant. Yes. But I'm sure you did a great job. Uh, Mike Jeremiah taught me a lot of what I know. So the cool thing is there was not as broad of a spectrum of requirements on materials to be used mm. during those times. We had 12 tiles to pick from. Sure. Times were different. We had basically one deck type that was used, which was a aggregate deck and it was cantilevered over all the way to the edge of the pool. And we did a lot of boulder work or precast and that was basically it. So there was not as many skill sets or needed the hydraulics, the steel, the gunite. We did all those things in house. So there's some people that do that, but that takes a, a large investment to do all that in house. If you're going to have some people that are specialized or you could have do it in house, but you have to have a person that's skilled at a lot of different things. Sure. And that's one business model. Another business model is some companies operate literally as brokers. They're brokering a transaction between them and their vendors and the homeowner. And so they have somebody coming in from outside the organization. And then there would be the hybrids that do some of the stuff in-house and then contract some of the other things. And the point is, there's some things that don't make any sense to do in-house for most companies because of the investment and the capital required in order to do it. In Phoenix, most pool companies there don't do a whole lot in-house. We have a lot of captive subcontractors, as I like calling them, trade partners, because they're, I never considered them subs to us. They just, they're part of the team. And so there's lots of different ways to do this. And it's a good question to ask your designer, how does your company operate? There's those that say, well, if you do everything in-house, it's easy to cover up your mistakes, maybe. But at the same time, you got outside people. There's just, I don't think in this case, there is a best way. It is based geographically to some degree because people in the Northeast do a lot of stuff in-house. It sounds like Northern California is the same way. And then depending on the type of pool, obviously we haven't even gone down this road of the different types of pools, but if we're talking concrete pools, like we're talking about, yeah, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Well, in some parts of the country, they build all three types. They mm -hmm. do fiberglass, they do vinyl, they do concrete. So the skill sets to do all those things are a little bit different. If you have a larger company, sometimes they can specialize. You have particular people that do something at a very high degree of level and skill set. And so if your demands are to do very unique things, sometimes it's better to deal with a specialist. Read. Versus somebody that's not done something every day and, and has the diversity to do a lot of different things, but they usually do one thing really well and mm -hmm. some other things they do okay at. Again, it depends on the part of country that you're working in and, and the, the amount of projects that you have people working on. Those. Absolutely. So there's a lot of different ways to handle it. There's some ideal ways. It depends on where you're at. And most so, companies, I think, are going to try to figure out what's best for them and based upon their clientele and their location. Absolutely. Thanks for the question, Nate. So I understand you're teaching a class right now, but in 2024, what's the plans? Anything new beyond just teaching the one class you're doing? I'm almost days away from launching a mentorship component to my teaching. That's one-on-one. -on -one. I'm wanting to work with designers who are either starting out or advanced. It doesn't matter. I'd love to be able to roll up the sleeves and do hands-on mentoring, like a fresh project that you're working on. 
So that's going to be the capacity. It's not ideally take the class that I've prepared as a, a primer, give you the vocabulary and the principles, but the new addition is going to be then be, okay, let's do one-on-one -on -one coaching with a project that you've got in the queue. We'll design it together, apply the principles, I'll hold your hand through the process, help you prepare your presentation and take it back to the client and uh, can't wait to hear how it goes. So awesome. for designers that are listening, and this is why we queued you up for this, designers that are listening, you are offering a service to help them elevate their game. Exactly. Be a mentor to them in their design process. We love it. I've really enjoyed the teaching and I see the need to follow up because there's so much I'm cramming into that class that, you know, it's my last 30 years of experiences, you know, well, that's a lot to try to cram in to a case study in a two-day class. So if you want to make it stick, I really want to follow up with one-on-one -on -one mentoring and coaching and we can go, you know, bring a project that you're working on, hopefully before you've presented anything so we can do it together. I'll hold your hand through that process. So if there is somebody out there listening, what's the best way to, for them to get a hold of you? For the moment, just I use my email, Kirk at BianchiDesign.com. In the near future, I'm going to have a page on my website that's BianchiDesign.com forward slash coaching. That'll be in the near future to have that launched. So it's not there yet, but just reach out to me by my cell phone, 480-234-2854 or my email, Kirk at BianchiDesign.com. And you work primarily in Phoenix, other than you do some work outside of Phoenix, if it makes sense. Yeah. And Zoom is unreal. We can do work all over the world together. So mm -hmm. send me plans, send me pictures. We'll get on Zoom together and we'll, we'll do this virtually. doesn't matter where you are. Bring me your projects and I'll help you out. One thing also, there's unique things to the area that you're working in. So we're talking to designers in some different geographic locations of the United States and is there particular things that someone, if they're working on a project, should think about or acknowledge as they go through their process that's helpful for them to understand that's unique to your area? I think some of the advantages in Phoenix are we don't have the freeze-thaw challenges and our soil is mostly very stable. That helps. We don't have a lot of expansive soil issues in most of Phoenix, like some areas of the country. But just from the overall site design, like the principles that we would be discussing in my design class still hold true wherever you are. You know, here I have a desert palette with really sculptural specimens that I can lean on. But the goal is if we're trying to do that in your area, well, what plant material would work in your area to create that same iconic bonsai effect in the yard, you know? So just becoming familiar with your plant palette in your area, that'd be part of our working together is to come up with some of those sculptural things. And then you'll have a working list that you can use. We'll apply the same principles, whether it's in Arizona or abroad, to creating these really beautiful spaces. Speaking of abroad and outside of Arizona, I mean, Mike and I talk about this a lot because we both are, you know, DFW area is huge. There's lots of work here. Neither one of us have any desire to go out and about and get out away from here because there's just too much to go on here. And part of that has to do with the fact that both him and I are wired similarly and that we want to be on jobs. So if a job is halfway around the world or halfway across the country, how do you handle that? Because, I mean, as you said earlier, as we all agreed, we like being on jobs. We like to make sure they're coming out the way that we want them to. The few that I've done, the budget allowed for me to fly out at milestones. And it also was with taking the right pictures and also just even FaceTiming, walking through the space. It's surprising what you can see from those technological aids that we have. So that's been tremendous help. But yeah, it's great to just to fly out at certain milestones. For sure. Anything in closing that you like to add? That's about it. 
you're gearing up for an awesome 24, do look me up directly or any help you want with the coaching or look for that to come on my website soon. Excellent. So we want to thank Kurt Bianchi for being on the show today. Another industry designer that's just at the top of his game. We very much appreciate you. Thank you for that. It's a real passion of mine and it's great to have that recognized. I love giving that. So I really appreciate your acknowledgement and it keeps me fueled up and wanting to do more. Thank you guys for having me. We'll see you down the road. Yes, sir. So Mike, it was great having Kirk Bianchi on here. I know that there was some questions that we had and just some clarification that we were going to do, but at the end of the day, really enjoyed having him on. Did you have any thoughts? Oh, from a designer, he's one of the best in the country on how he takes a space and develops it. I think that it's such key how he talks about the views and his space. And the other thought is, which is really critical because we just had an episode come out recently on small spaces Mm -hmm. and how that you treat a small space and his design process and having the key areas incorporated, what I call the big rocks. You got to put them in place first and make sure the space works and you've got enough room for plants and you've got enough room for entertainment. You've got the key things that, and then you, with what's left in the small space, that's where you put the water. So it's quite different than what most people think about. It seemed like it was more reverse in the sense that you were designing all the ancillary things around the project, the yard, and then figuring out what space you had left for the pool and then designing the pool to that. So you had everything in the space. Yeah. Then it all works. Yeah. It was great. So the other thing that he talked about some is just how he incorporates with a group of people to put together a collaboration, the lighting and the landscaping and the pool part, which I think is really great because there's a lot of people that come to the table with certain skills, but very few have all the skills at a very high level. And so that was really insightful for someone that's new in the industry or someone that's been at it for a while and and wants to have a more complete setup and a complete finished product for the clients. Yeah. And I think one of the other questions he brought up was, well, actually he brought up the idea that, because we asked him, if you're going to hire somebody to do a plan for you, how would you do that? And he suggested hiring a landscape architect. And you and I have talked about this a lot because you went to school to be a landscape architect. We just got off a episode where Jason Brownlee was a landscape architect. And I think the point really was that you want to find somebody that has some experience doing this. And a lot of landscape architects, to your point, which we talked about, when you were in school, you didn't necessarily do a lot with pool design, did you? Oh, no, never. So most landscape architects are trained to do industrial and commercial and golf course design very few of them actually deal on the residential scale. Right. And so we talked to Kurt to just make sure we weren't misrepresenting what he was trying to say. But what he was trying to say is you want someone that can create a master plan Mm -hmm. that has the skill set to put all that together. And one thing that's nice is landscape architects do understand vision and the things, all the components put together. But a lot of times it's difficult for them to work in the residential scale because they're used to working at a totally different scale and putting spaces together and small yards are very intimate. And so a lot of them don't have a lot of pool experience or outdoor living experience. And so in an ideal world, you want someone that can create a master plan that has all those experiences, which quite honestly, I'm not a licensed landscape architect. I I studied that, but I can't use that title. And neither is Kurt. And 
I think Jason just recently got his license reinstated, which he didn't have for a number of years. You want someone that has the skills to put all the pieces together. Right. So the point was that to what Mike's saying and even Kirk to some degree is that a landscape architect, it's probably going to be we're used to working on very large scale projects yes. versus a single residential house. Right. And so in the team concept, we're talking about, you've got a pool designer, Mike, myself, Kirk, Jason, anybody else, but then the team might be a lighting, a Janet Moyer. You might bring a landscaper in, somebody that does hardscapes, whatever else, unless you're capable of doing it all. And some people are fairly capable of doing most of it, if not all of it. But whatever your weaknesses, the fun thing about this industry is everybody brings a strength to what they do, mm -hmm. but there's also something that you're not good at. The cool thing is you can put a team together, like Kirk was talking about, that can put everything in place for the homeowner. If you've got someone that's coordinating all the, juggling all the balls, I could say, and that's the person that puts together the master plan. Yeah. And I love that concept, actually not a concept, but just that whole saying of collaboration by association, because that's how we learn is we go to these classes, we meet other people from other parts of the country, you know, in yours, in my case, because we're doing the podcast, we can talk to other people from outside this particular marketplace. But at the end of the day, there's no way any one person can know everything about every single market. Right. And so having a team in place, doing the collaboration by association makes all the sense in the world. So one thing that was really cool was Kurt's passion for education yeah. and trying to help other people. And he even talked about mentoring people on an individual basis and being able to adapt the things that he does in Arizona to other parts of the country. So that'll be a fun journey for some people. And what I found is over the years is that the people that go to education that have gotten certifications, they see the value in it because they've done it and they've learned. And it's really the people that have yet to even participate or go or even try it that is a little bit of the challenge, because I think once you go to a few classes, you're going to realize pretty quickly, I need to go to more. Hopefully homeowners understand that there's a lot of value in the people that have education. So they start asking, do you have some? And if not, that will drive more people to get it and it'll make the whole industry better and make the homeowners experiences better as well. So anyway, we enjoyed having Kirk on here and we're looking forward to having a lot more guests. Yeah. We've got some more lined up here shortly. So one thing too, if you happen to be on your podcast list, looking at podcasts and you scroll down to our podcast, and if you go through all the episodes down to the very bottom, there's a place that you can give us a review or a five-star review, or you can actually comment. So those things are really helpful for us. It'll be helpful for other people to find us come spring when they're trying to do their projects. Those help. And also, if you have some questions, social media, you can post them. You can also go to the website and find the place to enter a question, and we'd love to answer those for you. Absolutely. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care. This show is all about helping you become a better buyer, a better pool owner, and hopefully you're going to find some insights into how to enjoy your pool even more so, how to help your friends, your family, anybody looking to buy a pool in the future or that want to remodel their backyard, add an outdoor fireplace, fire pit, add an outdoor kitchen area, add some shade cells or whatever else it is. We want to be that resource for you, and that's the end goal here, and we promise 
that there's going to be a ton of information. We'll try to go through it, you know, as relatively quickly, but also slow so people can understand. But the intent of the show, the reason Mike and I are doing this is because we just got a lot in our heads and we want to share it. So we hope to see you here every single week. Thanks for listening.